0: Well hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine Welcome to Rattlecast number 153 So glad you could join us Nice to be back after a week off We had a fun trip up to uh, Bend, Oregon Visited some family, we floated the Deschutes River Got some R&R in, it was all good Um, A nice fun road trip too, up on the way Uh, But I'm glad you're here Uh, two weeks later It's good to see you Um, Today's guest is Heather Altfelt She'll be here in just a little bit Before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation A 501c3 nonprofit Working to promote the practice of poetry We've been in continuous publication since 1995 And are unaffiliated with any other organization We just do this because we love poetry And I know you do too, so please do click the like button Share, make sure you're subscribed All that good stuff, anything you can do To spread poetry around the internet is all that we ask Um, So click the like Or click the bell or something like that right now uh, Depending on where you're listening to um, but first, we're going to start out with uh, today's Poetry Spawn Poet Respond um, poet who had Sunday's poem. Darren Eckert is here. Um, and here he is, Darren Eckert. How are you doing, Derek?
1: Doing good. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you could join us given um, all that's going on. Um, you know, the poem, of course, is about the floods in eastern Kentucky. Uh, you grew up in Hazard, Kentucky, you mentioned, and um, live, uh, where is it that you live? Uh, Lexington? Lexington. Yeah, yeah. So um, how are things now? I think you mentioned uh, over email that you were working on cleaning up uh, your dad's um, office um, the day uh, that, fa- uh, this weekend, yeah.
1: My father-in-law's office, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: yeah a dentist down in Wattsburg, which is Electric County, which he got like six feet of water at one point. Oh, wow. Multiple inches of mud in every room. Thankfully, he's had a lot of people helping him, so mm-hmm.
0: hopefully he
1: good- gets up soon but there's a lot of devastation down there a lot of houses just completely moved off their foundation cars on like fences and walls it's really bad
0: and how has the um have the waters receded at all or is it the same you know how how does that work i don't know how long a flood lasts there's one thing that always strikes me because we've had um a few uh, fires that we've had to evacuate for, and it's like on the national news. And then, like, the fire's happening, everyone's evacuating, they love the pictures on the news. And then two days later, the news is just like, it, they forgot it happened. Like, that's how long our attention span is. So so, how long do, do f- the floods last? Like, how much, you know, how much damage is there um, in your your uh, father-in-law's business? And, and how, I don't know, I mean, how much of cleanup is there? Are, are the waters receded? How How is it looking?
1: Uh, the water receded in... I don't know, like a day. Mm-hmm. It went down. The problem is it's still raining for like the next two weeks, which is how this started to begin with. It mm-hmm. rained for like a month. The walk- ground got so saturated that it just wasn't mm-hmm. absorbing any water anymore. So it just started going straight down into the valleys and the hollers and things like that. And then it just accumulated, built up. But yeah, it receded. The problem is now it's going back up. Mm-hmm ground still just as wet as it was so hopefully we get some dry days and it stops
0: yeah that'd definitely be good um and and so let's talk about this poem uh, what will be left which was sunday's poem on rattle.com um there's this interesting form where the the beginning of each uh, stanza is repeated um and people have asked and i didn't know myself what what form that is do you know it was that just something that you came up with yourself the the repetition of that or is that something
1: uh i'm not huge on form i Mm kind of go about the my favorite poet is Dylan Thomas. So I kind of go by the if it feels right, then do it more yeah. so than actual form. So, more like free or blank verse.
0: Uh huh.
1: But yeah, this one has more of a rhythm pattern to it than what I usually do.
0: And so, uh, and so when did you, uh, like was that that beginning, the what will be left kind of refrain? Um, was that kind of a hook that drew you into the poem? How did the, the poem come to be?
1: Yeah, that's what I've started with was the what will be left. And then from there, I went to the drowning verbiage and the ending of it just kind of came together towards the end where the end of each stanza kind of connects.
0: Well, let's hear this poem. This is what will be left. You want to go ahead and read it?
1: Sure. What will be left of this drowned town when the rain stops and the river lies low before the storms, We wanted more, but now we would settle for what we had. It was enough that yesterday, we were wrong to think there was nothing left to lose. What would be left of this drowned town when the land that slid is pushed away? Within the mounds of clay and broken trees is what they call debris, but that is you and me. Let there be enough that tomorrow we may be wrong to think there is nothing left to lose. What will be left of this drowned town when those we loved are found? The silence may weary, but when it breaks, the word may come. Pleads, let there be enough that today we are wrong to think there is nothing left to lose.
0: Yeah. Just a beautiful home about a tragic event. That ending is just so wonderful. Um, um, what has what your experience been like with the flooding growing up there? Is it something that was regular? Is this way you know off the charts compared to what it's been in the past?
1: I think they said it's like the worst it's been in like 200 years, as far as like modern history that they have recordings of. I think mm-hmm. the last one that was even close to this was in like the 30s maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a kid – growing up in hazard like i would remember we would go down and like look at the floods downtown because we lived up on a hill and thankfully our both of our families still live on hills so they're not in the flood zone but we would go look at it and it was get pretty high it's never gotten anywhere close to this Mm -hmm. i think most of the businesses that got hit by this and the houses one of my friends his house got hit he said it got up to the front yard and he said well there's no way it's going to get to the porch and then once it got to the porch he got his wife and his dogs and his cat out of there and they left and then maybe an hour later was in the house.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow yeah it's it's hard to uh hard to imagine and uh but but thanks so much for joining us I'm glad he could given the circumstances and, and writing this beautiful poem um, that that just captures all our hearts uh as, as you read it thanks so much for sharing that and joining us today and, and good luck with the cleanup.
1: Yeah thank you I appreciate
0: yeah. it. Yeah thanks so much Darren. And it was Darren Eckhart um, with uh, Sunday's poem, which was uh, What Will Be Left. And let's take a peek down and while we have a little bit of extra time. Let's go for a blast in the past. Let's look at what was going on, I don't know, what year? Let's see. Uh, let's go back to uh, July 31st. Um, this was uh, July 31st, 2016. This is Merrill Stratford with A Brief History of the World. We'll give this a listen. Um, and I'll read her note. This is uh, Will we finally break through the world's most visible glass ceiling? is her quote. And um, the article from Think Progress is gone, but Hillary, first female presidential nominee, qualified ever, not coincidence, is the title. Um, that was July 31st. 2016, this happened, where um, it was Hillary, man, how the world has changed in the last six years. Um, Hillary Clinton was running against Donald Trump back then, July 31st, 2016. Here's Meryl Stratford's poem, A Brief History of the World. Uh, Let's give this a listen.
2: A brief history of the world. They lost their glass slippers on the palace steps. They saw visions of martyrs on stained glass windows. They imagined a different world beyond the looking glass. They crossed the ocean in a glass-bottom boat. They struggled up the slopes of a slippery glass mountain. No one warned them about the glass cliff. They spent a lifetime cleaning sliding glass doors. They examined their glass, half empty, half full, they threw rock concerts in their mother's glass houses. Their daughters crashed through the highest glass ceiling.
0: And that was Meryl Stratford with uh, A Brief History of the World, a poem from July twenty-first or 31st, 2016. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest. Heather Altfeld is here. We'll be here with her in just a moment. So sit tight and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I mentioned, today's guest is Heather Altfeldt. Heather's an undergraduate degree from Columbia University with majors in both anthropology and creative writing and an MFA in poetry from the California State MFA Consortium. She teaches in the honors program and for the Department of Comparative Religion and Humanities at California State University, Chico. Her second book of poems, uh, Postmortem, which is right here. Uh, was selected by Eric Pankey for the 2019 Orison Prize and is now available for order through Orison Books. You can find more of her stuff at Heather Altfeld. That's Heather, A-L-T-F-E-L-D dot com. And uh, here she is, live from the beaches of Santa Monica. Heather Altfeld, how are you doing, Heather?
2: Hello. I'm doing fine. I had a little bit of a journey to find a place (laughs) to
0: broadcast
2: today, but I'm here sitting in actually... um, one of the last places I saw my grandma before she died, so oh, really? kind of a really important spot for me.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that that is, are you are you like on the beach? It seems like you are because there's palm trees in the background, but maybe I'm just projecting.
2: Um, I'm actually up on the, in Palisades Park, mm-hmm. which is just off of California and Wiltshire um, down off of the I guess it's the Ocean Boulevard. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Well, very cool. Well, it's uh you know people assume we we're in Los Angeles, but we're actually 2 hours apart cuz we're uh we're way east in the mountains where the weather is completely different too. It was pouring rain just a few minutes ago and uh which is just great. I mean, we need the rain really bad out here. And um but it's cool to see I'm glad it's not rainy where you are
2: though. <laughs> That that would have been over the top in that, terms of what I could
0: take. That, that really would have. Uh, but if you see if I see lightning in the background, I'll warn you. Though I don't know. I mean, <laughs> thank you. Um, so anyway, do you want to start out with a poem? Do you have uh, a postmortem there? Can you can you start out with a, something to read?
2: Yes. Um. Actually, I thought I would start with a poem about my grandmother, um, because this is. As I said, the th- this is her hood. My grandmother lived here for about 30, 40 years,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um, I used to I used to run away from home and come here to see her. Oh wow! So uh, this is on page twenty eight, and it's called Tahara. And a Tahara, if you're not familiar with this, is the um, ritual washing of the dead that is. Um, that is done usually um, in complete silence and often by people who were strangers to you. I had not imagined that she would be frozen or that her teeth would be so small, little shards, mouth teeth, grinding 93 years on carp and seltzer, or that her fingers would be curled like fiddlehead ferns done with the revolutions of their day wool paper steel hair knives prayer what hard candies did they unwrap what doorbells did they ring and on whose porches whose pajamas did they button what was the coldest day they had known before now where had she been with these hands in her pocket on what blue chilly sea as I poured the first cup over the crown of her head, I told myself to have a dream about her. And what appeared in my mind was this very scene: but her eyes open and blinking, and me saying, Sheldula, I'm sorry to be just meeting you now when you are shy of defrosting like a chicken. I wish we could have gone for chocolate phosphate, the treat my bubby always bought when I ran away from home. Two buses to her work through Skid Row, where a kind gentleman offered to sell me a cup of his pee. Apple juice, a nickel for you, sweetheart. She would buy me a hot pastrami from the deli and say, tell me about it, my trinket, while I tried not to cry into the rye bread. Now it is hard to walk around without thinking of the ones beginning to freeze among us, their hands hardening beneath the streetlights their toes beginning to stiffen in the grocery stores, their eyes blurring in the nursery schools and at the matinees. How soon they will be stumbling into plate glass and shot through their hearts and flung into fields full of lightning, stones, plague, war, limbs. In the end, we will all be blue-bellied on a table with a wooden board beneath us washed with plastic buckets from Home Depot, our tiny dead cells appropriating the drain waves like firecrackers. Such measures we take to drop kick deaths into the woods, how quickly we file them into brass coffins, heavy as cars, as though it were of the utmost importance to ensure their security on this particular planet, to continue to claim these grassy slopes with the terrible promise of forever. She seems cozy here in the plain pine box, dressed as a third grade pilgrim, knowing how quickly she will dissolve into the earth. We think we want to go on indefinitely, ticking like bunnies, but then we would never return to this moment, bathed by the same hands that bathed us when we were caught by this world. Cold and shivering and speckled with light, comforted by the promise, Tahorahi, Tahorahi, that we are pure. Like my baby daughter, held up by a nurse after her first washing, terrifically pink and ready to live, all of her new cells clamoring for the pipes, where they were washed down and recycled and reclaimed with the rain, those cold, fresh little
0: darling, And that was Tahara from uh, Postmortem, Heather Altfeld's second book, which uh, just came out last year, winner of the 2019 Orson Poetry Prize. And um, that's a great poem to start out with. Uh, well, really any poem would do, because they all show off the uh, the richness of the, that you write with. There's so much detail and so much information. I always, when I read your poems, I just feel like it's a... Um, I don't know, like a history lesson and a, you know, just a, a chronicle of the world in, in, in ways that are just, I appreciate all the time. Um, and it, so it's no wonder that you're an anthropologist. Um, so, so how do those, I mean, how do those two things play together? Um, how did you become a poet and an anthropologist at the same time?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I'm not a practicing anthropologist, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm an informally practicing one. um, And I do a lot of traveling, I'm interested in in humans. And I really feel, I guess, like, you know, anthropology, technically speaking, is this the study of, of humans. And I also think story is the study of humans and poetry is the study of humans. And those those actually are fundamentally what we're really stripped down to and there's really so few other differences between us and even those even the stories even the poems that exist in in different cultures have so many resonances between them Mm -hmm. you know and so i'm just i'm completely intrigued by that i find it very very wonderful
0: yeah um um so how you know what did you want to be first um you know having both degrees did did you go into one and then add the other or or did you not couldn't couldn't decide how how did that work
2: <laughs> Yeah I was one of those people who switched majors like five times um <laughs> you know I I thought when I was a younger kid that I was going to go into medicine and then I hit like ni- 12th grade math and I just thought Wait, there's more after this. <laughs> like that's not going to work at all. And um, but my my mother has uh, a, had a master's degree in anthropology from UCLA, and I ha- there were a lot of books around our house that were you know these time life books, early man, Neanderthal, the hominid, etc. And I I just loved those. I was so intrigued by those, and I was so intrigued by um the ethnographies she had around the house that would just describe these entirely different ways of life so i think i had that going on as an interest um and then i started getting into poetry in about 10th or 11th grade because i just thought it was so magical as a way to communicate i'd always wanted to be a writer I'd wanted to be a writer since I'd read Charlotte's web
3: mm-hmm.
2: as a very young child and um but I guess like Neruda says poetry sort of found me
0: yeah, well, there's a way that, that poetry and, and anthropology are the same thing, really. You know, I mean, we're just both studying it. It might be like the right brain versus left brain studying people, but it's the same kind of uh, human nature, the exploration of that, you know, one through generative creative process and the other through careful study. But it's very, you know, it's the same topic. It's just come at it from different angles.
2: And, you know, the, fundamentally, one of the things they share is listening. Mm-hmm. Um. Which I guess is just another, yet another sort of baseline of cross-cultural humanity. It, it they're both just putting your ear to the floor and listening.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And and uh, it's just it's the the one thing that that's, that's just great about, about both things, I guess. Um, do you want to let's read another poem? Then we'll talk more about about uh, the the topic of the book itself.
2: Sure. Um, they're also depressing. But uh, it, <laughs> um, I think I'll read a slightly lighter one for the next one. It's twenty-four, The Apocalypse Club. Okay. And um, you know, as as I if if people have heard this poem before, you know, I started teaching a class called The End of the World mm. in January twenty twenty, and <laughs> yeah. I've been teaching it ever since then. Um, And one of the things I've really learned is that a lot of people are preppers. I've learned this from the students, I've learned it from the readings I've done. And so this is called the Apocalypse Club. Let's face it, the end of days titillates as well as any good porn. Nothing arouses quite like the thought of strewn bolts and broken joists, the severed tendons of the George Washington Bridge the arm of God rung and snapped back into its socket in the sky. Is there anything so hot as you dressed as a doomsday pinup with a round of ammo strapped to your chest for popping squirrels or the looters drinking from the slushy machine? Is there anything so delicious as the idea of whistling taps in the embers while administering bandages to the masses as though in life you'd been indispensable? The heavy prepping is delicious as foreplay. The collection of beans and iodine, space blankets and dried ramen. The arrangement and rearrangement of brickwork in the cellar to hide the magazine. Pinks up your gray and beefy heart. So start a campfire and fall asleep until the forest burns and the animals run and the trees split down the center and the bees sizzle in their hives or drive a cannon disguised as a car into the bohemian club and run, run, run. Then bring out the hatchet for chopping wood or splitting the skin of an old horse for jerseys. Bring the little mirrors used to start fires or check the sharpening of your lower jaw after weeks of lean bits gnawed for sustenance. Bring the powdered milk and sardines and the love you buried beneath your eyes years ago. Because there is nothing like the bait of a good apocalypse to make you feel relevant to the one you loved, the one who left and did not call or write all those long years, the one who will return, crawling with her apologies through the rubble and the ruin to sip the last of your tinned juice. Your first crush was the one you had on the whole world its trilobites and its rose quartz, the pewter soldiers who seemed to sprout from the mud. You were part of something grand back then, and it was as if for a little while you'd meant something to it, as if the whole world had been in love with you all of its life.
0: And that was the Apocalypse Club, again from Postmortem. And I'm glad you read this poem. I didn't know what you were going to read, but this is the this is the thing I wanted to talk about the most and and that line uh, your first crush was the one you had on the whole world it seemed like the heart of the book um you know this book is a series of um almost cottage's or um or um you know allergies for for the the stuff that we're losing if we lose the world you know it's like a love poem to all that might be gone. And, um, but you touch on something like the one comfort I always had, like, it feels like we're living in the end times. <laughs> I mean, it just does. Um, and the one comfort I've always had is that everybody has always felt that way. Um, you know, I mean, the, the revelations was written, they thought that was the end times in 100 AD. And, you know, every culture has always warned and thought that, that this was the time. Um, why do you think that is like, why do you think we're drawn to that apocalypse club? Um, what is it about humanity? I mean, you mentioned there that we, it makes us feel special, you know, so there's some kind of like, you know, I'm the one living in the time of all ending that makes me important, which is something in a weird way comforting to us. Um, is that all there is or is there there more to it than that?
2: That's a really good question. I think we're drawn to this because actually, we're sort of drawn to beginnings as well. We're drawn to the idea of a clean slate. And so an apocalypse, I think, makes us feel like there's this sense of possibility, this great sense that there's something besides all this calamitous shit, besides the um, beautiful poem that was read uh at the beginning of this podcast about the flooding in kentucky besides the fires and the drought and you know i think that we want to think that there are beginnings and that it's actually more about that mm-hmm. that that's my current thinking on it um and of course there's you know certainly the notion embedded in christianity that you know, only a certain number of people are going to make it after the apocalypse. Um, that isn't necessarily, you know, exactly the same in other traditions, but I think fundamentally we just sort of of want to do over Mm -hmm. as humanity. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, it does feel like, um, we might be about to get it, (laughs) which I mean, I don't know, like careful what you wish for, you know, like, um, I don't know, and, and the weird thing is, just in political, I'm not that worried about climate change, but I'm worried about other things. I mean, there are some things that are really dangerous. Uh, the The twin nuclei problem, I think, is the most, the biggest problem. I mean, that we uh, that, uh, we can make a virus that kills us all. I mean, that very easily, you know. Um, that's that's huge, and and the the our, our vulnerability with the supply chain and the and that the last minute delivery of everything that we need to survive, um, with the sun that hiccups coronal mass ejections every couple hundred years. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of things that we're sitting on that are really like a ticking time bomb. Um, And and I don't know. So... Do you think that that's true, though? I mean, because everybody always thought that. And that's the one thing I always come back to. Like, we always had reasons, you know, the, the sea peoples were coming to to wipe out Egypt, you know, or or whatever was happening. We always had something that was the thing that sort of motivates us to be paranoid. Um, So do you think that we could (laughs) just be in that same situation and everything will be okay?
2: no i mean sorry to <laughs> yeah. burst, blah, blah, blah. but no and i think one of the biggest differences you know if we were worried about you know the phoenicians for example part of that was because we had very little um sense of what was beyond the small part of the world we lived in so like for example you know even even 300 years ago it would have been very unlikely you would live more than 10 miles away from your family mm-hmm. it would be unlikely i'm not saying it never happened but it was unlikely it was very unusual certainly 500 years very unusual and so what we're looking at is a um you know we talk about things being speeded up and i i sort of i i don't like that because i feel like it's very dismissive but we in fact have this much larger sense of the world mm-hmm. Much larger sense of the world, and it's um, a sense that makes us acutely aware of the suffering in other places, the, the tensions in other places, and I think we've created kind of a, a a situation where, you know, there's a great deal of hostility between peoples and 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 the massive ability to do something about it.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean we just have so much power to ruin things now (laughs) and that's what it comes down to
2: and you know i mean i do okay with a shred of optimism i look at the fact that like the cold war did end at one point right Mm -hmm. and those of us who grew up in the era where we were worried about dying in a nuclear war we that sort of calmed down for a while so it gave us a false sense of peace and, you know, perhaps we'll enter a false sense of peace mm-hmm. for, you know, that's always possible. Um, but I think the potential for, for something very bad is, is quite high.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're just living on a precarious ledge, you know, we just are. Um, on, on many many different fronts. I mean, even one that we don't think of, um, which I don't know if this plays in anything, but but AI. Have you seen the the AI artwork that just came out in the last week? Um, yeah. Artificial intelligence can make art that's as good as an artist can <laughs> already, and I mean that's without like significant A B testing and like you know tweaking it to to fit our. I mean, the one thing I I thought you know I thought um you know poets will always have poets cuz we'll always want to have people you know communicating but if a computer can do it better i mean the the meaning loss that we're going to face when we're useless i mean that might be a bigger calamity than any kind of uh, you know sea level rise or anything just this our sense of um like what are we here for Um, and, and so with that in mind, um, I I kept coming back reading this book to, um, I think it was Merwin who said, um, you know, what would you do if at the end of the world, he has a poem, I can't remember what it, what the poem is, but he, he said that he would plant a tree, right? Am I thinking of that right? I think so, yes. Yeah. and, And so what... I mean, what do we do? Like, we're writing a book like this, and 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 sort of remembering all the things that there might not be consciousness left to remember <laughs> at some point in the not too distant future. Um, um What do we do? And and how do we stay optimistic? I mean, you know, there's a lot of humor in these poems too. Um But, I'm but glad uh, you, yeah, I'm
2: glad you thought that so. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a pretty dark book. But I, I yeah, I mean, it's I hope... dark
0: humor, but there is humor, you know.
2: I don't know what we do. I mean, I'm not like God or even, uh, I'm not even like an amateur rabbi or anything, but um, I do think that fundamentally listening is a really important act, like listening to each other's pain. And, and I don't just mean this on a micro level, but I mean actually trying to understand the troubles people live with Mm -hmm. on, on a very human fundamental level, I think is something that's so critical right now. And I I think only a human can tell us how a human thinks and feels. I, I just, you know, don't think there's a substitute for that. And I do, you know, derive some optimism from teaching college, because I, the past three years, especially I've encountered just You know, I really think there's a shift in, in, at least in my students, they seem uh, like, this is a terrible thing to say, but I think the suffering of COVID might've, it it sort of, um, it shifted something in the the consciousness of, of young people. And I feel hopeful actually That's maybe what I cling to is some of the young people I talk to, I feel like they're more connected and they're desiring connection in a way that's much more profound and deeper than I've seen in the past. And I've been teaching for a long time, uh, almost 18 years.
0: Hmm. Do you mean connection to each other or connection to the gro- great, you know, the broader world? What do you mean by connection? Say more about that, because that's the first time I've heard of it. I don't interact with very many people, so I don't know what <laughs> what people are like these days.
2: I think I I have felt, and I you know, it's completely possible I'm mistaken or I have a strange sample, but I have felt that there is this desire for connection. To each other, to the natural world, to reality in a in a good way. Like wanting to actually step away from a screen, mm-hmm. make human contact, and they know it's hard and it's painful. But I see a lot of not just willingness, but like desire, like a depth of desire for that. And I I hold on to that. Um, I have to. I'm a mother. And I have kids I've brought into this world. I <laughs> yeah. kind of hope that they're, you know, they, they, there's a, a shift in consciousness that you know, I think they don't want to die either.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I think a lot of them are very sad. A lot of my students have expressed great sadness that they don't feel like they should have children.
3: Mm-hmm. My
2: own children have occasionally expressed this. And I, I think having mm-hmm. that, Sense of desire for something different counteracts some of the gravity of the horror.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can definitely relate. Like, I was, you know, thinking about whether or not I should have kids. You know, it, it's a it's a difficult decision almost these days. Um, and then the weird thing is, at the same time, we live in the best of times too, you know. But that's you go back to those. Everything's a cliche, you know. It's the best of times; it's the worst of times. I mean, we can have conversations like this. I mean, the the you know poverty is 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 smaller than it's ever been by just orders of magnitude. Even the natural disasters we talk about the flooding, but I mean, the deaths by natural disaster and famine and stuff are down like ninety eight percent from what they were, you know, before the you know a century ago. I mean there. There's things that are just amazing that we can do so many possibilities. I mean there's so much to be optimistic about. At the same time there's this doom like cloud hovering behind us. Um, I don't know, it's just the weirdest time to be alive. <laughs> it just It is. is a
2: very, very weird time to be alive. I mean, I'm surprised we're not all in cults. Like <laughs> that we're not just all like in, in serious devoted cults. I'm surprised, you know, forty percent I guess, you know, the Some of us are. A lot of us us are. A lot of us are. But, you know, I I think often, really, really often of my favorite show, which I'll have to I have to do a two second pitch for, which is The Leftovers, Mm -hmm. um, and how well that show articulates both like apocalyptic fear and a sense of uh it rebounding from grief that is just unlike any other text in this this time hmm, period it speaks to me that way and um you know one of the features of that, that uh show is like is a cult and um the guilty remnant and uh you know thinking about the difficulties we're enduring now it's hard to believe we're just a lot of us just trying to lead normal lives too, you know? Yeah. Just,
0: yeah. just so strange. I do love, I mean, I love the idea of people wanting more connection and I love that the phrase touch grass is now something people say that is something we need to do is touch more grass. Um, but we should keep reading some poems. Let's hear another one. Cause these are just yeah. so beautiful and so rich. Uh, they're, they're worth sharing. Let's hear another one.
2: All right. So I think I'm gonna read at page eighty-three, which is belated Kaddish for a baby mammoth. Um I did a lot of work over the last five six years about the the death of the woolly mammoth. Um, and I apologize, somebody seems to have started a very loud engine. I'll try to read loud. Belated Kaddish for a baby mammoth, Vivianite. It sounds like a barrette or a dark green brooch you might have worn or at least fingered in the little antique store downtown where the old woman sold dollhouse furniture, tiny chandeliers and lampposts and typewriters and finger machines and miniature relics of time my mother kept locked in a cabinet as though the past were hers alone, a place she could return to without us. Instead, it is the ancient paste you sank into 42,000 springs ago, dearly dallying behind the group to have a romp in the spring mud. Children so often get these things wrong, tempted by the glimmer of light under the ice or a sweep wrapped beautifully in cellophane. The idea we all have that something better waits just outside of where we are. When I stole the minute bread box with a crumb-sized loaf of bread and hid it under my bed, I believed that I believed I could grow a family that would sit around the table and eat it. Then you swallowed one mouthful and tried to blow it out, but it got stuck in your snout, snuffling your cries and stuffing your trunk deeper on each inhale and filling, eventually, your ears, so that, like the orphans of Rouge or Aleppo, you could not hear your mother, the stomping of her protest as you slipped down irretrievably into the underworld, deaf to her wail as it echoed from the ice that grew around you as night fell from the sky and the sky fell away from the earth.
0: Yeah, another gorgeously sad poem uh, that was belated Kiddish for a baby mammoth. Perfect location for that, near the uh, near the uh, La Brea tar pits. Um, yes. Yeah, um, and so you uh, were just on a Fulbright uh, grant to Morocco, right? No?
2: Oh, not a Fulbright. I wish I was on a Fulbright oh. grant to Morocco. And if anybody from the Fulbright Foundation is listening... Um, I would love to be
0: considered. <laughs> so what was, I thought I read that on your website, but maybe not. What were what, what, no. what you we doing in Morocco? That's my only question anyway.
2: So I was doing a writing residency mm-hmm. at a place uh, deep in the Sahara, uh, really out there, almost all the way to Algeria.
0: Oh, wow. And and what was that, that like? Like, what were you, you know, why did you, you know go there and and what was your experience like and how long were you there and that's that's fascinating
2: i was there about a month mm-hmm. and um why did i go you know i feel like i figured it out finally why i went which is that i needed to get away from the noise
3: mm-hmm.
2: um i regularly regularly teach five classes i have kids i um i have a big life and i love it but i can't right and sometimes I can't really even focus and so I think that's why I picked the furthest away place I could figure out to get to to go and it was really beautiful and fair and quiet I loved it
0: so did you get a lot of of writing and, and thought in
2: well I got a lot of thought in um my my hard drive Uh, fried in a sandstorm less than a weekend um and then I dropped my kindle so it was really interesting because it was a little bit like traveling in like 1988 um you know I had very little connection with the outer world and so I was doing things like reading books from the bookshelves on the little library there and um I had a couple books with me and I read those and I did a little reading on my phone and I just, I actually read and mm, 10, 12 books there and thought and made some notes, mm-hmm. wrote a lot of quotes down, but I didn't write.
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, speaking of, um, you know, blank slates and and, uh, resets, that seems like a perfect one. Um, Can you talk a little bit about about your writing process? Because it seems so research-rich. I mean, there's just so much detail and so much content in your poems. Do you you approach a poem like an essay or something, like where you're doing research before you do a poem?
2: I do sometimes, although often it harms the poem to do this. So I've been trying to back off a little bit with that. But uh, I do... I, I read a lot of weird stuff and I try to keep it in my head or keep it in journal notes and come back to it. Um, like a lot of antiquated stuff, medical history, etc. I just, so my process is terrible. Nobody should emulate my process because <laughs> my process is something like uh, don't write until it becomes so urgent you know that it's like trying to find a bathroom after seven hours on a road trip (laughs) and then you should definitely write and then you know often i'll write somewhat uh intensely for a while well
0: that's interesting can you say more about why um, research gets in the way of writing that that's interesting you kind of yeah
2: I think it gets in the way of listening a little bit again, back to that idea that I don't really hear myself or other people. If I'm doing research, I mean, I hear the past. Usually in the kinds of research I do, I hear the past and I really like that, but it's sort of hard to just like maybe to assimilate emotion. Hmm. It, It can get a, and a lot of my work has recently turned into essays. Like most most of my last three years, the things I've published most, mostly were essays. Hmm.
0: And how do you feel, uh, you know, the difference between the two? Like as far as, um, you know, reaching an audience. Do, do you find essays, you know, reach wider people and have more of an effect on the world? Or do you think um, poems do, even though they reach fewer people, but, but hit more deeply maybe?
2: Gosh, I don't really know. I, I think, you know, the one essay I wrote that was actually moderately successful that ended up in the best American essays. um, I felt like that reached some people. Uh, Somebody left an Amazon review that said something like, you know, Heather Altfeld's obituary for dead languages made me not want to get out of bed, which I thought was like, really, you know, that that that's an impression on me yeah. <laughs> i don't but uh, to be honest i haven't really felt like i've ascended in some way where my where either form reaches people so much i think if anything the people i'm reaching if at all are people when in the classroom like Mm -hmm. my students i feel like i'm kind of sometimes reaching but um but i don't really know
0: yeah, and it it's strange. Like you're almost like we're all just kind of writing into the void and you have no idea what kind of impact you have. Except for I do, because I get to have people write to me all the time and say, Hey, this poem meant a lot. Can you give me the author's email address? That happened twice today actually, for um the poets in oh, prison. Wow. Um, two separate people asked for mailing addresses for them for the summer issue, so you you know you you send it out and it's it's strange like you have no idea what the impact is going to have and then and then it does but a lot of it is just missing you know and, and mysterious you never know. Um,
2: uh, one of the poems you published connected me to a a, a relative I'd never met or oh, heard wow. of even. Really? So somebody wrote me because they'd read the poem in Rattle.
0: Oh wow! And, uh, and, and they—how do they know you are a relative? Is it
2: uh, the last name Altfeld? Oh wow! <laughs> not very common, so somebody tracked me down.
0: Oh, that is very cool. Well, uh, I want to keep going with some poem. Let's do another poem. Sure. sure. Um, I think I'm
2: going to read the poem uh, because you were discussing rain in in uh, where you are in uh, big bear mammoth uh rightwood area uh obituary for snow page 66. good la poem <clears throat> when i was a child snow was a rumor a foreign substance obsolete in the tangle of freeways in stands east side of la snow was the kremlin with a red paint drop besides Snow was a skirt of polyurethane taped to the waterless fountain at the mall. Snow was a train from St. Petersburg in the movies, caterwauling through snow. When I first saw it fall from the sky, it was as if there were seraphim everywhere who had been invisible to me, barrels of powder strapped to their bellies like bombers, skating across the sky and shelling us with feathered light. Now in rat-hot June, it seems the last of it has fallen on Earth. Every peak is thirsty, every pine needle mourning from its bow, every marmot nostalgic. The last spot of snow at the top of Olympic peak fades every hour, bit by bit into wet mud, feeling the butt of the russet peaks against the pale sky fierce, defiant, it disappears into the weak totter of the stream, drizzles into the cracked earth, lupine pokes from granite, thin as widow's hair, butter and egg flowers fizzle in the heat, beneath the crest, a series of eyes blinks from the icy crust, praying to the hot blue wind, a handful of frozen busybodies, Pinned beneath a blanket of light. Their vertebrae separated and bleached. Morsels of skin still attached to the fur. Waiting to stutter and burst from their aged burial. A museum of mummified things. Forgotten bits of an age turned to runoff. Museum fodder for a dry world. I am one of the last mothers. Whose children will know the delicate lace of a flake caught in the cornice of their hair. Daughters of icicles, historians of flurry, librarians of milk-bottled whiteness, chroniclers of dendritic crystals. I see my girls doddering at the podiums of the future, mumbling of sleighs and mittens, drifts high as rooftops, snowmen tall as fathers, the audience bleeding in disbelief, as they listen to these elders speaking the forgotten tongue of Alpen Glow. They will tell the story of the country bunnies and the little gold shoes, which we read beneath these peaks when they were very young. Late March, heavy drifts, marshmallowing along the river, dreaming of our favorite bunny, the golden trundles of her feet, leaping to the highest snowy peak, to bring foiled eggs to the sick. Little boy sleeping at the top. Oh those butter blonde days when the flock of them gathered against me, radiant beneath the fleece of the sky, her cotton breath was upon us then, aloft with soft wings. How much we will miss it as the warm winds warm and the tepid rains fall, that bright legend swirling in the antiquated light, the soundless sound of its falling, silent as the lost songs of the Inuits and the Alpen folk and the flurries of little birds who once lived, cresting and peeping in its flakes, cooning of what they knew and of what they could see just over the mountaintop, beyond the rink of light, somewhere we have not yet been, but are seemingly terribly restless to go.
0: And that was Obituary for Snow. Yeah, wonderful poem from uh, Postmortem. A good LA poem for sure. And, uh, you know, so if you have any questions for Heather, um, do let me know in the comments. I'll pass any along on either YouTube or Facebook in the chat window. Everyone's quoting just these amazing lines you have, uh, chroniclers of dendritic crystals. Um, The sky fell away from the earth. You know, there's just a whole bunch of things here and, and my question which i don't even know how to say this in a, a way that that isn't a bad question but is this stuff just in your head <laughs> like i can't imagine i mean these are so rich you know linguistically I, I can't imagine that 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 story of you know that that metaphor of like um having to to you know pee and then it all you know rushing to find a bathroom and it just all comes out like that i mean is, is that all is that all really in your head at all times
2: I don't know the answer. You know, I'm waiting for it to come back because it's been a while since I've really, really written something and I am trying to trust that the little ghost that seems to visit me, it, it, it is, you know, people talk about muses and I always dislike the idea of a muse, but it's more like some ghost appears and then i write a poem and sometimes i remember very little of the process and then it's there and then i'm completely lost as to how to get to another poem
0: yeah i mean it's a kind of listening for sure which you've mentioned um who do you think you're listening to like is it something deeper inside yourself or is it some kind of collective larger consciousness that you're listening to what or just other people what like what is the What is the listening? What are you listening? Who are you listening to?
2: Wow. I like to think I'm listening to some kind of more collective heartbeat or more collective song or more collective sort of interconnectedness. Um, I was just listening... Uh, today to one of those on being podcasts and it was with this rabbi Lawrence Kushner and he he was defining what a mystic was and I wish I'd written it down I was in fact driving and trying to find a parking place uh, to do this podcast I didn't write it down but it was I realized what he was saying about a mystic I thought was true of like 50% of the people I know and it has something to do with being curious and unsatisfied with the idea that everything can be rationally explained.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm.
2: So I feel like I'm listening for that.
0: Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I like the way you put that. Um, there's a question here from Judith Fay. Um, she asked if you could talk a bit about why this snow palm is in prose format. Um, was the decision? Um, what was the decision about? Uh, was anyone else involved in the decision? And that's something I wanted to ask about too, because the poems, um, you know, it feels like they, you know, the difference between poetry and prose is a very slippery line in this book. I mean, there are a lot of prose poems, and um, and and why does one go one way and and one go the other? What's what's the difference to you?
2: You know, I took a whole class at Columbia with a wonderful professor, Alan Ziegler, uh, about it, it was called short prose. Um, in short prose poetry I think and I took the whole class I, I did well I read everything I, I didn't come out of it with any more of a definition of what made something prose and what made poetry I, I, I no failing on his part I just couldn't get it I think that this particular poem I really struggled with getting it right and it was in long it was you know written in stanzas and I decided to try undoing the stanzas to see what would happen. I guess the difference between, for me, between something like this and just regular paragraphs or essay is that I'm still trying to work from the idea of the economy of language, that mm-hmm. is such a fundamental part of poetry, even though my poems are very long and. Um, I agonize over every decision, every word when I'm going through a redrafting. Mm-hmm. So when I looked at it and I saw it in stanzas and it just kept not working and not working and not working, and I undid the stanzas and changed it up a little, it seemed like it fit better.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of listening to, I guess, to whatever we're yeah. listening to, you know, to, to see where the poem feels right. Um Well, do you have time to maybe do two more poems? Uh, One, then another question, then another poem. Do you have enough?
2: Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. As long as these headphones, they're really doing (laughs) great. Um, Yeah, they are. (laughs) Very (laughs) impressed. So I think I'm going to read Elf Obituary. Uh, since I talked a bit about um, young people and children. It's on page 60. Thanks. Elf Obituary. They stood in the clearing a while, looking at you with their keen eyes, once thought to be immortal, then began walking backward on their clumsy little feet, waving, waving, until they were even smaller than elves, until they were as small as the shoes they had cobbled, and then as small as the teeth they carried in their pockets, borrowed from the pillows of children, and exchanged for golden coins. Then as small as the flakes of snow they whittled in their workshops while we slept dreaming of grape ices. And then they were gone, slipped back into the deep green hillock from which they once came. Like the rest of the species here, who once woke in the night to prowl or hunt or stand in the trees, to gobble the pear slice of the moon, there have been fewer of their kind everywhere. Like the rest of the species here, they remain invisible to the human eye. They have sworn themselves to fates of hemlock and foxglove. should we find and trespass those tiny gates that surround the middle of the earth, where they have shut themselves like lions and tigers, and the soft-shelled turtles now extinct in the wild, where they will remain until it is safe To visit the bald green earth again. Goodbye, leaf boats and quilts of spider silk woven for homeless old women in the night. Goodbye, mushrooms ringed in the trees beneath the shimmer of tin stars. The kiss you felt on your cheek before dawn was only a leak in the thatch of your roof. The watch you put beside your bed last night when it's ticking on your wrist reminded you of death will now be, without mischief, exactly where you left it, flicking the minutes toward your own extinction. Is there still magic in the world? Your child will ask, while pressed against you to hide from the things that thump and knock in the dark. And you will say that the world is still full of things unseen, by which you mean that the world is full of terrors, which your round ears and your pickaxe and your manufactured shoes, no matter how zippy, will have no real way to save them
0: from. That was Elf obituary. Again, we're reading poems from Postmortem, Heather Altfeld's newest book. Um, let me see. So, um, um, Bobby Tibbs asks, um, who were the first poets that you read who really meant a lot to you um, or woke you up poetically um, and made you want to be a poet? Um, Oh, we lost the headphones.
4: Ah, there we go. Yep. Okay. <laughs> we lost the headphones, but here we are. Okay, I am ready.
0: Did you Did you hear that question? Um. So, who are the first poets that you read that really meant a lot to you and that woke you up poetically um, and that made you want to be a poet?
4: E.E. E. Cummings for sure. I mm-hmm. read him in high school and just was so enchanted. We had to memorize. Uh, a poem in one of my American Lake classes and I memorized one of his poems and I just was so blown away by his stuff. And, um, and Yehuda Amahai, I uh, went to Israel when I was uh, quite young, I was um, 16 and we were as- assigned this tremendously long poem he wrote called Psalm of the Last Benjamin of Tadella and I just, I was blown away by it. I just thought how, how it was, it's, it was narrative and it was lyric and it was gorgeous and it was fundamentally life-changing for me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Good, good suggestion there. Um, and then where'd it go? So Mark Grinier asked something, uh maybe good, good kind of round it out. Um, question do you see poets as being like anthropologists living outside the day-to-day living of people in the community at large some mm-hmm.
5: i think
4: i think it depends on if you're attending large largely to yourself or, and your voice or largely to a larger voice mm-hmm. i think that there's a bit of a difference there because, you know, one of I mean, I often think about um, psychology. I I read a lot of um, James Hillman and Jung and really interested in the, especially Jungian ideas about collective unconscious. And I think that if if poetry does try to go to that place, yeah, it is very anthropological. Mm -hmm. But I think sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it doesn't have to. Sometimes it's answering something that, at least in the moment, feels more individual, Mm -hmm. more personal.
0: Do you feel your own writing is is consistent in sort of one spot on that continuum between, you know, self-anthropology and collective anthropology? Or do you think you kind of vary around poem to poem?
4: You know... As a as a mother, I learned some long time ago that sometimes personal poetry, I don't have the courage that Sharon Olds has, where she will dive into that and and, and do so with such like bravery and grace. I don't think I have that. And so I think I've been afraid to I don't I don't like to write much about myself mm-hmm. in a way that people that's too revealing um, <laughs> I, I, I don't mind being a narrator I like mm-hmm. to be a narrator I th- and I think having a first person narrator in almost any writing is, is usually a good move but um, yeah I am I, reticent about writing stuff that's that's really personal I guess
0: or yeah, I, I kind of uh, it, it's weird. I, I relate to that a lot and feel the same way, but I didn't used to. So, you yeah. know, it's changed, and I kind of almost wish I uh, got to that place a little little earlier, so I wouldn't have so many poems I've written in the past that are that are a little too personal. But, um, but yeah, I don't um,
4: think I hit that place until I was about. 40 when
0: mm-hmm. i thought oh done yeah i mean i'm I'm kind of bored with myself too i guess as part of it <laughs> you know <laughs> like i had some demons i had to figure out and then once i did you know i don't know what else to write about myself but anyway enough about me let's close out with uh one last poem from the book what do you want to end on
4: um i don't know do you have one in mind um
0: um, I'd have to flip through Do you want to finish out with the last uh, I don't know Because some of the poems are really long How long was Yeah I that's the why last I was poem. a little
4: conflicted the Yeah last the last one poem
0: was, was a little too long That was one of my favorite poems in the book though The
4: first poem's too long The last poem's too <laughs> long um,
0: <laughs> How about so, the um, uh, the second to last poem That's a good one too Obituary for Silence
4: Okay That would be
0: That's 90 fine. if you're looking for Page it
4: Page 90 Yeah Okay <clears throat> Obituary for Silence. Just before silence died, she entered each of us to say farewell. The children playing pea whistles in the street froze mid-peep. The mother's grieving sons slain in war ceased their wailing. Even the hermit calling his lost dog in the woods stopped calling as she moved through us, drowning us in the stillness of the world. And then she was gone. Everything began to waken. Turbines asleep in the fields of wheat ticked and whirled alive. The bones of old cars sputtered in the junkyards. The human heart, long hidden in the cavity of the chest, now churned its greasy churns in the cold air. The ghosts of men, once just shadows, falling across the floorboards, put on their knees and elbows to dance the hammer. Even those born inside the call, deaf to the soft music of the womb, began to flicker beneath the veil at the sheer volume of the world's din. For years, silence had hidden between boulders above the tree line, sleeping during the day and slipping unseen through the black night surviving on green shoots and the goodwill of birds. Toward the end, she hid in the bombed out houses after the bombs, crouched beneath floorboards, quiet as a Jew. Those who would miss her gathered in the forest to sing a lullaby, singing as their mothers once sang to them, crooning her into the next world. They prayed for the milliseconds she left between raindrops for the moon who stared into space without sound. Someone I know once gave birth to a child who had died inside her. It was worse, the mother said, than silence. The mouths in the room had no words for something both new and dead. Another friend woke one June morning next to his wife, her skin milk blue her mouth slightly open as though she had been about to say something. The words she never said is the silence he will hear until he dies. Now that silence is gone, nothing can scare us anymore. We had created light to disturb darkness. We had created noise to disturb the sound of nothing. Now we thought we could live without fear. But when the casket was lowered into the earth. Nobody knew whether to whisper or wail. The trees, birch and pine, fir and aspen, leaned into the grave to give thanks. It was because of her that their leaves had once been heard on the wind. It was because of her that winds die out. It was because of her that snow made no sound now silence is buried now even the dead can hear us thinking
0: yeah just another gorgeous poem that was obituary for silence a great meditation on silence and that in that middle there that's that stanza um that's this is the silence that he will hear until he dies that's a chilling you know goosebumps kind of kind of line in that poem um heather thanks so much for being a guest just wonderful poems great discussion it was a lot of fun talking to you i'm glad you found a spot that was a uh, workable And, um, yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your trip uh, through the L.A. area.
4: Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who (laughs) bore with me during the chaos and the noise around. No,
0: actually, it wasn't too bad. Most of it was not picked up. So, uh, you know, I see occasionally someone runs by over your shoulder. Otherwise, it's been fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So thanks, Heather. (laughs) It's been great talking to you. Yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. All right. Thank
4: you so much. Take care. Bye
0: bye. Yeah, that was Heather Altfeld. And of course, her new book is uh, Postmortem, right here. You can find more of Heather's work at uh, heatheraltfeld.com. That's Heather, A L T F E L D.com. And uh, do check that out. Now we're going to go to a quick break and go to open lines. Um, let me put this up so you can see how it works. That's not the right one. There you go. So email your poem first if you haven't yet to open mic that's open mic at rattle.com email to open mic at rattle.com that way you can show it on the screen as you read Um, and that's always a lot of fun and um, I'm gonna get the invite link Um, I'm gonna invite you over to zoom so I'm gonna deploy these and hopefully we won't have any we had some some fun uh, fun spam in the uh, in the chat window tonight hopefully they won't follow us over but here is the uh, zoom link Um, Although that might make it interesting. I don't know. But um, I'll pin it to the top. That is the Zoom link. I just put it on YouTube. I will put it on Facebook as well. If you'd like to join us, join the Zoom right now. And uh, email your poem to openmic. That's openmic at rattle.com first. If you do not want to share a poem, though... Uh, let me say this very clearly, I me mean, looking at the camera. If you don't want to share a poem, though, just stay right where you are. You don't have to join us um, on the Zoom. The, the broadcast keeps going. Um, just pick one or the other. If you'd like to share a poem, pop over to the Zoom, mute, or just turn off your stream wherever you're watching it right now, and that way you won't get confused by the delay. Just look through one thing, and it's Zoom. So i uh, looking forward to sharing your poems. I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back in just a moment as I get everything organized. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Um, Now, if you want to share a poem on the open lines, I should have said that uh, you can do whatever you want, which is uh, there's a prompt every week. If you have a prompt poem, um, you can write send poems about uh, current events. If there's anything about the news you'd like to share or just any poem you've published recently or or are proud about, you can send the link, and then I can show the uh, website on the screen and uh, highlight another magazine, which is always nice, too. So feel free to do that. The prompt for this week, and I'm going to have to... readjust this there we go the problem for this week was to uh, use anna m evans that was uh the guest two weeks ago um her uh, her book the quarantina chronicles did this so follow anna m evans process from the quarantina chronicles make a word cloud or, or find it find a local news article then make a word cloud from the text write a tritina using the three most common words in its line as its line endings and so um that was the prompt for this week. And a tritina is like a half sestina. The tri-sestina versus a sestina. You know what I mean? So uh, it's a three three stanza sestina with a one-line ending. And here is uh, my poem. Oh, I didn't include the link to the article. So so I mentioned that we went up to um, Bend, Oregon for our little vacation last week. And I picked a story, I don't know, the the Bend Observer or something was the newspaper. Um, and the headline was something like, I wish I could say it word for word, but I didn't include the link. The headline was something like, um, um, you know, Residents Tie Arson Suspect to a Tree, which was the headline. It was somewhere in, in remote, uh, remote southern Oregon, and uh, someone had started a bunch of fires, and, um, you know, the locals had found it and, and put the fires out and, and worked that, and then they found the suspicious suspect walking around, I assume, with a gas can or something, and, um, and uh, tied him to a tree. But what was interesting in the article was that um, they clearly had uh, roughed him up a little bit because he had to go to the hospital, um, but, but they uh, kind of made, I don't know, they didn't mention the fact. They said the guy kept falling down, which I thought was very interesting um, instead of obviously he was being uh, beaten down for starting the fires. And it was a really dangerous spot too because the only access, I guess, was um, um, one river there, very tough to get into and out of that area, so people could have died very easily from these fires that were set. Anyway, this is my uh, Tritina for this week, this is not justice, so here you go, justice. They had to tie the suspect to a tree. He couldn't keep from falling down. The fires, he said, upset the local residents who rushed to put them out. The residents had tried to settle down among the trees, the fir and ponderosa pine the fires had lit. And that's the thing with wildfires. They burn through any fuel that's resident. They make a torch of every standing tree. For in each tree that fire is resident. So that is my tritina justice. So let's see um what you all have for us. And let's go first. I'm just gonna go to the order everybody appeared. Carla Schwartz is up. Hey. Hey Carla, how you doing?
6: I'm good. And I did a prompt poem. I actually have two. They're very short since they're you know they're ten lines. Um, so <laughs> I can. I'll do them both.
0: Yeah, and, for sure. Two um, is good if they're short, and these are definitely short. Yeah. So if you have two two prompt poems, feel free to do two because they're short. Um, and, and if it's a longer, regular, different kind of poem, do one. Right. Um, so what so, do you what do you got?
6: So this first one, um, I did one that was inspired by news article word cloud, and the other one was just words that came to me. Interesting. So the first the first one is called "Help Water Mother." And it's from the Carlisle Mosquito, my local newspaper.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Um, Hey, Carla, I think the uh, microphone's a little far away. Is there a way to bend it closer? Oh,
6: oh, oh, is this better?
0: I think that's a little better. better. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry.
6: (laughs) Okay. That it's unbearably hot doesn't help. All you have to do is jump in the water. No one can take this easily, not even your mother. Tap-tapping, you awake from your nap, your dead mother. Your nap bed rocks gently in your houseboat on the water. You close your eyes, grasping for the deep, but no help. Your garden is dead, lack of water. Also dead, your mother. For comfort, fall back into slumber. The heat helps in times of drought help conserve water don't lose sight of your mother
0: yeah that was excellent and i love that that highlights uh, what i found i liked about this form I, I think in sestinas i get a little bored eventually <laughs> but they they put it they make it uh since the rhymes happen or the repetitions happen more quickly it's a shorter poem i think they work really well i think i like these better than sestinas
6: right and I also like that you pull these words out from the article, but they don't necessarily uh lend mm-hmm. into the
0: Yeah, know. for sure. It's a cool prep. So this one is what lightning light mistakes with mushrooms. And and what was yeah. this? How did you generate this?
6: I I it came to my mind. <laughs> these words, these three words came to me. Light mistakes with mushrooms.
0: Interesting. Well, go ahead.
6: You want to bring light, but you keep making mistakes. They shrivel from you like mushrooms. For breakfast after your swim, you forget the mushrooms. Knowing to lose sleep is a mistake, you wake with morning light. The sky makes no mistakes, has no more control than mushrooms. Watch the storm rage, lightning. If light mistakes you for dark, let your heart mushroom.
0: Oh, that's great. Love that last line especially. Um so uh, Richard Westheimer left a little comment. Um I don't know if you saw that, but he said that you're featuring somewhere tomorrow and I think I saw that too out of the corner of my eye. Um, um because it's poetry, with Jimmy Poppas. is that what they're one?
6: Right, with the Poetry uh, Society of New Hampshire mm-hmm. and they have a Facebook page that I'll put again on the on the um in the chat on YouTube. Yeah, great. Maybe on Facebook too. And that has um uh, the Zoom link actually already there
0: mhm- yeah the 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 uh the Jimmy Popish um, broadcasts are really fun what's your theme like he always has he had me do a yes. theme that was like um like surprise yourself or something like that but what was your what was your theme
6: My theme is poetry poems inspired by living on the lake
0: ah perfect, yeah well excellent so and we get the lake in the background here for those watching
6: yes, yes. and the and the people jumping off it that's the u s post office mailboat
0: behind me oh excellent yeah very cool well um yeah so everybody check that out it's um what is the facebook is poetry new hampshire is that what you type in it's
6: the poetry society of new hampshire mm-hmm. and i'm going to put the link in okay. youtube and on
0: facebook excellent yeah go find the link and, and enjoy that show tomorrow and, and good luck have a good time carla i'm looking forward to it
6: thank you bye excellent. bye
0: it's carla schwartz with two uh tritinas and let's go next to angela gartner Hi, hi, Tim. Hey, Angela. How are you doing today?
7: Good. I'm so happy I did a prompt poem this time. <laughs>
0: Excellent. Well, I'm always glad to see that. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so what is the news article that you did? And of course, you are a local news uh, journalist. So, um, so you could have done one of your own articles, but I don't know if you did, did you?
7: No, I actually, and it's local, but it's local to Ohio Mm -hmm. and um, the Ohio State Fair is coming. And I thought it was interesting when I went on the site is um, how to prevent your vehicle from being stolen from the Ohio (laughs) Fair. So I was like, that's kind of interesting, like that they would put that out and, Mm -hmm. you know, it's good information, but um, it's just kind of an interesting article to actually
0: out yeah <laughs> so
7: well, I'm, I'm scared
0: i don't know if you have the problem here but what, i'm always scared about our catalytic converter being stolen every time i go for a hike i'm like trying to i don't know if i should park my car hidden somewhere so that like thieves don't see it or like more in the public so they do but there's other witnesses it's always this like angst decision for me for some reason you know because it just happens so much that people just crawl under there and rip that thing out and i got a you know subaru with that zero um, partial zero emission thing there's a lot of like I don't know. I'm scared about that, too. So I want to hear the advice.
7: <laughs> yeah, it's good advice. I, I did put an article in the link if you want to read it later. <laughs> yeah, I definitely,
0: I definitely will. We'll see what they say. Okay, go, go ahead whenever you're ready.
7: And I use going, door, and stolen. So um, it's kind of, I, I thought to be kind of sinister today, since it's a sinister kind of site. Type
0: story and the word cloud's there too. If anybody, it's on screen. I, I didn't think to include my word cloud, but but there it is. Okay, go ahead.
7: The record player stopped going when you came and opened the door after tapping it three times. My stolen vehicle you left in the driveway had a stolen cake for me to eat. I told you we're going to leave the treehouse for for dessert, but the door was covered with thick twisted ivy to keep the door hidden so no one came knocking i had stolen a look at the machine as it squealed when it got going and going until your screams went dry with my eyes watery the door to revenge was stolen
0: oh, very interesting love that ending thanks for sharing that um, thank maybe, you yeah thanks angela, angela Gardner with the, tri- the tritina visitor thanks angela thanks have a good night yep you too Let's go next to a first-time uh, poet. Oops, let me. Uh, it's uh, Alan Harvey. Hi, Tim. Hey, Alan. How you doing? Doing okay. And and where are you calling from? First off, I'm in Tacoma,
8: Washington. Excellent. And Not my so locals, far from
0: Ben, where we were. uh
8: it, a little ways, well, but yeah.
0: For for LA LA distances, it doesn't. Oh, seem okay.
8: That way. <laughs> so um, I found an article in the Seattle Times. Mm-hmm um it was talking about how violence on the streets are on the uptick and some parents and activists got together and are trying to do some creative solutions so they're not looking towards the government mm-hmm. um I don't know if you have my word cloud there but I do yeah pull it up um, for everybody when those words came up I thought oh oh maybe this is a bit much but they're <laughs> violence intervene and community Interesting. so yeah I
0: Took a shot at it. Okay, go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I have it. Okay.
8: Our local news is filled with violence. Fanciful superheroes don't intervene when monsters rule our community. Rise up, rise up, community. Stop the rolling tide of violence and form creative interventions. Citizen leaders brainstorm interventions, bring creative energy to our community, and face and address any further violence. Creative community intervention. Clean our streets of violence.
0: Very interesting. So uh, I get a little sense of a circular circular nature there in that poem. What did they come up with that they could, uh, that they have any ideas that, that um, might actually work?
8: The one that comes to my mind first is uh, two rival gangs were kind of getting into it and it was escalating. Mm-hmm. So they actually paid for the, them to go to two different cities like, oh, interesting. um, uh, Sacramento and Portland or something like that. I, and they had a month of interventions down there, uh, anger management and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. And I, I guess it calmed things down when they came back a month later.
0: That's so interesting. I saw a thing where, um, I think it was in Chicago, maybe, maybe Detroit. They had something similar and they had them paintball war each other. Oh. And so they gave them all paintball guns and got the aggression out in a non-violent way. I don't know. There's a whole project, I guess. I think it's Detroit. Um, so I don't know. People can use their imaginations and find some uh, interesting solutions. Thanks so much for sharing that, Alan. Good to see you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hope you join again soon. Take care. Okay, let's go to uh, Stephen Croft next. Hey, Tim. Hey, Stephen. How are you doing today? Doing good. Um.
9: I'd like to read a Poets Respond poem. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a little longer than the prompt poems. Um, it's responding to a recent New Yorker article on Ukraine, and particularly the photographs that were in the article. Here, let me see it's, if I can
0: pull them up. Yeah, I haven't fo- uh, I'll put the photos for people at home so they can see what you're talking about here. But, but describe them for people who are just listening. Okay.
9: So uh, seeing desperate lives. The photos make me feel a hundred years old. Schoolroom, made rubble, skeletal steel frames of desks, somehow standing, withstanding the blast. Exhausted firemen sitting in the living room of a burning house, admitting defeat. Woman with concerned face dappled by sun, through leaves of her yard's beautiful trees, leaving her village house, one forearm holding a fluffy white kitten, its face buried in her shoulder. They're desperate and I tire of mainlining their anxiety. So I look up from the phone into my rear view at the sun scorched asphalt. The road beyond my yard's tree cover is molten with summer sun. I wheeled in and looked up Ukraine like I do at least once a day, and it makes me feel 100 years old. So I do the only thing I can think of to forget, step out of my pickup, take shoes off, toe to heel, pull off socks, walk my pine straw and oak leaf drive onto the sizzle heat of road and its sudden tactile feel in the flesh of my feet consumes me. And I am here now away from war and soon I am young again walking barefoot the hot paved parking lot to the state park spring that began a river in Florida that mine and two other families caravan to in summers. The hours of swimming, the picnics in a blanket of grass by sedges, herbs and wildflowers at river's edge until the Burns Ministry becomes too much, and I walk back onto the cool of Pine Straw, open the truck door for the phone, look again at the places I will never go to anymore. After Russia invaded, I talked with my Iraq vet friend, David, who told me of two acquaintances who went into Ukraine to rescue the in-laws of one of them, native Ukrainians. And I said I could no longer handle war psychologically. My mind hearing the ominous thump of helicopter rotors, distant artillery pounding, danger close seconds later, high-flying planes, birds of prey dropping dots of bombs that ride gravity's slipstream to earth, plowing earthquakes that reverberate spit heat and flame against everything natural. He tells me of the healing power of yoga, how he started yoga teacher training. Next time we talk, I'll have to tell of walking a hot street. I look again at one of the photos. I'm well removed now, twice, through the lens of the camera, through the lens of my phone, but I remember the pain of watching starving dogs being shot by laughing Iraqi soldiers. And I wonder where the woman will take her cat. Yeah, powerful
0: ending on that poem, Steve. Uh, oh, yeah, that's one of the things, speaking earlier about how the media just moves on. It feels like we've moved on from Ukraine. Um, are there any updates? I mean, I haven't heard anything new. It seems kind of like a quagmire of like supply chain, like who can have the most bombs will win or something What what right. is the situation
9: uh we've 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 dumped another 500 million in the u.s has to ukraine so you know it's gonna it's gonna prolong i think one thing that you know as i say in there i, I follow it a lot um and my friend david is the same way we just can't help it you know mm-hmm. having uh having been in in iraq
0: yeah for sure Um, makes
9: sense so uh the balkans are kind of unraveling is the latest thing oh Uh, really Hmm. russia's um pushing its its sphere of influence out into bulgaria and it's making noises about kosovo and uh you know world war one started in the in the balkans Mm -hmm. so uh that that's a deterioration we we don't need nato's gonna plus up its forces in kosovo is the last i heard and uh you know the, the Serbs have always been allied to Russia, um, and that's causing the problem right now. So I guess the, to me the Balkans are, are the the latest addendum to the to the ongoing thing.
0: Yeah, well that's that's the first I've heard of that, but it really uh, ties in with the the you know depressing topic of today's show. Just so many fronts, there's so many dangers that we're uh, we're lying ahead. You know, uh, but thanks for sharing that and, and for the update, Stephen. Okay, thank you. Yeah, take care. That was a Stephen Croft was seeing Desperate Lives. And let's go to uh, Richard Westheimer next. Hey, Jim. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? Good to see you after two weeks. It feels like I've uh, you know, i seen you every week for a long time. I miss you. I have not seen you for the first time in a long time.
10: <laughs> it, it, it's, it, as I've said, it's been part of my... Um... My uh, people's MFA in writing is showing up at Rattlecast.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, I'm so glad that you're uh, you're continuing to enroll. So so what do you have for us today?
10: I'm paying my tuition. That's (laughs) That's true. (laughs) um, I I just wanted to give uh, folks a uh, heads up. I'll post these again. Um, There's a writer's school, Heinemann Settlement School Mm -hmm. in the middle of the affected area. And Heinemann is both a local... Haven for uh, for people upholding Appalachian heritage, but it also is a center for Southern Appalachian writers, so many of whom you've have been on Rattle.
0: Yeah, I know. I've seen. I don't know where I've seen on my maybe Facebook or Twitter timeline or something uh, pictures from there. Just devastating. There's something about seeing books, you know, wrecked and floating in the mud. That's just I don't know as bad as seeing anything.
10: Well, it's a natural place for writers, mm-hmm. perhaps to uh, you know send a few dollars. Um, they were they were having a poetry workshop there this weekend that got
0: flooded out. So. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, definitely put out the link in the chat windows for sure. Okay. Um,
10: so I think I'm gonna I, I uh, I'm gonna read I'm gonna read a poem that I have a question about, actually a technical question about from the crowd. Interesting. And it's about Joni Mitchell's. Um, um, performance at the Newport Folk Festival. It's called My Son Cries, and I see both sides now. And I don't know whether this is a publishable poem, because I don't know how to cite the lyrics that I've used Mm -hmm. in the poem. And, you know, whether two words in a row constitutes You know, is it fair use to take somebody's lyrics that are public domain, you know, like out there in the public? Or do you have to really go through and cite each one and what the song is? So,
0: Well, um, that's a good question. Um, And I'm trying to get you submitted this right through uh, Submittable? Yeah, I submitted it uh, through uh, Submittable this weekend. Well, I'm just trying to get it to pull up. Uh, Submittable is not being friendly right now. It's just spinning. But anyway, but but it's a great question. Um, There's a where I would direct everybody to. There's a, a pamphlet that the Poetry Foundation did. And um, I was on the little room with focus group thing talking about airing out this pamphlet, but it's called uh, Best Practices for Fair Use in Poetry. And it's a PDF you can get online that goes through all the details of what it is. I mean, the gist is, though, um, you know, fair use is a kind of gray area legally that's unlitigated and it should be fair, but anybody can sue anybody for anything. So everybody's overly cautious. <laughs> that's kind of the, you know, not professional legal advice. I'm not a lawyer. Um, but that's kind of the situation. So you should be in your right as, you know, it's transformative. It's not going to diminish the value. There's a, there's four factors that fair use has to f- qualify under. It has to be, um, transformative. It has to not, um, you know, decrease the value. Um, I can't remember what the other two factors are, um, off the top of my head, but, but it should be fair use. Um, and I think it's fine. Um, but you might have people wary about it, especially if you publish a book, um, so you never know, I guess, is the, uh, the question, the answer to that question, but look up that poetry, um, best practices and fair use for poetry is the, is a little, it's like a chapbook that they put out. Um, okay. uh,
10: do you want me to email you the poem? It's come
0: it? up, which one is it? It's, uh, my son cries. Yes. My son cries. Okay. Yeah. It just took a while, but it, it came up eventually. I don't know what the deal was, but I have it right here. Okay. Uh, here we go.
10: Um, so for those who don't know, Joni Mitchell showed up surprise performance at the Newport Folk Festival, and sang uh, unexpectedly. This is seven years after her aneurysm, where she had to re- relearn how to play, how to talk, how to sing. Oh
0: wow, I didn't know that.
10: Hmm. Yeah, everything. She actually taught her, retaught herself to play the guitar by looking at YouTube videos of Joni Mitchell playing the guitar. Oh
0: wow, that's amazing! Wow, that. I mean, I knew you know she hadn't been around. But that adds a, a big layer to that new story that I didn't realize.
10: Um, and some of it she's just recovered in the weeks before the before the uh, concert, so oh, wow. it was pretty. So, um, my son cries, and I see both sides now, with lines borrowed from Joni Mitchell lyrics, and the epigraph is "The Queen of Folk is holding court and making every jester cry," and that was just a YouTube commenter. My God, Joni, you messed me up when I was a teen. My rock and roll brain buried deep in Led Zepp in the dead. I felt like a child listening to you. all those moods that consumed me. I had no words, and you hymned them into me, conjured the lonely road I was traveling. I knew I ached to be some girl's old man to lie with her under a starry dome, to be the guy who rambled and gambled unfettered and alive, like it was me, not you, facing the sea on that album cover, your body so imperfectly beautiful, which made skinny me feel free to be nakedly imperfect. It was too dangerous to want you, but maybe I could hold hands with Lindy or Judy which would be all I really, really wanted to do. So when my 20-something son sends me a link, texts, Joni's singing and I can't stop crying. I click and wonder why he cried. Then I saw what he saw, you singing both sides now in a way no one had heard before. You tenoring today from that stage overlooking Newport Sound, so blue you could sail away, but here you are, not the young soprano smashing glasses down at the Mermaid Cafe, hanging with red, red rogues, but a new one whose seasons have gone round and round, who looked behind from where she came, whose illusions had played their games on a thousand, thousand stages, you who for a moment couldn't bring yourself to sing about tears and fears and feeling proud because yes, you've changed. And yes, we've both lost and gained living every day, which is why I think my 20-something son cried like he did. How could he not? How can we not hear in the spaces between your words the cadence that none but the sweet gestures on stage could follow? None of the sweet gestures on stage could follow lest they fall into the well he's left uncovered, your life of dreams and schemes and false alarms. And no, teen me and all our wondrous sons don't really know life at all. So you sing it to us, you hearing your own song for the first time, which is why when all was sung, the warm chord of your delight played on, you sigh, your smile overflowed with such sweet laughter. You, as surprised as we were, you say what we would all say to you. Oh, that was beautiful. Oh, that was beautiful.
0: Yeah, great poem as always, Dick. Uh, my advice about the the uh, quotes, I think what you should do is, um, you know, with borrowed lines from Joni Mitchell lyrics, it says at the top, I would... Uh, say, with borrowed lines from Joni Mitchell lyrics, italicized, And then italicize all the lines that are hers. And then uh, people will know which ones are hers and yours. And then um, I think that's totally fair use. Um, although anybody, you know, the ASCAP could sue you, though. <laughs> yeah, <and laughs> but they probably I won't.
10: <laughs> yeah. And the question is, are, do two words constitute a lyric? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, it depends if you're if you want to call people back to that song, I think it would. And if not, I mean, everything is just a judge's discretion. There's no people think there's like a 25% rule or something like that. There's no rule. It's just a um, you know, I know it when I see it, you know, like the pornography thing or something. Um Okay. So That's Yeah, yeah. But uh, but do check out that uh, best practices guide. And what I would do is just do that cuz there's, you know, there's a whole tradition of centos and things like that where poems are generated out of other lyrics and it's nothing you know, it's part of the um, it's part of the tradition of literature, and, and that's one of the things fair use tries to, to represent. So, um, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. OK. <laughs> OK. Thanks, yeah, so thanks for sharing that. Excellent poem, Dick. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Uh, let's go to Katie Dozier next. Hi. Hey, Katie, how are you doing today?
11: Good. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. So what do you have that you would like to share?
11: Okay, well, I didn't do the prompt, unfortunately, which I feel like now I want to go back and do this prompt because I really like people's prompts, and I feel like I shouldn't have get that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I uh, honestly, I feel so much better about the show if I do the prompt. When I didn't, when I miss a prompt, I have this like sad feeling inside, and when I do the prompt, I feel happy. So I'm gonna make, I'm making it a priority to actually do them. Um, do the prompt. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. well, lesson
2: you're... for me as well. <laughs>
0: You know, I've read other poems too, you know, and it just doesn't feel as good as having a poem. But no offense to your poem, which I'm sure is excellent. Um, this is all in.
11: Aside from the fact that you rejected
0: it. Aside <laughs> from that. But, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So what was okay. this about, though? You set this up because this is a news uh, poem about current events. So uh, yeah, that's what, what was your news story? Yeah.
11: Uh, this is about there was an active shooter scare uh, on the strip. And I'm a poker player, and so it was while the WSOP, the World Series of Poker, was still going on, so I um, saw a lot of accounts from friends, and it was treated like it was no big deal because it wasn't a shooter, Mm -hmm. thankfully, um, but it still, like, really affected a lot of people, and so I just wanted to uh, write a that so i did and then yeah. i just minimized my poem and have to find it again <laughs>
0: yeah yeah. psychologically it's like the same thing i mean you still live with the uh, perception that that's what happened um that happened right. at the the mall um down the hill from us just last week too there was just oh, a wow. rumor that there was an active shooter and everybody was running and thinking that it was true and um, it turned out not to be in just a false alarm somehow, but, um, but, but until it's, you know, you're in a, you're Schrodinger's cat until you, uh, you decide if you, yeah. know, you learn if it's real or not. That so, um, like- yeah, well, let's see this. This is all in.
11: Okay. All right. All in. Rocks hit the door. Jagged edges pierced the glass. The strips neon lights shot in and shook MGM's marble floor. The smashes reverberated around the rotunda, spilling gin and tonics and filling the night. A shout of active shooter ricocheted off the walls. The people sprang behind bars, jacking the boxes in reverse, recoiled behind enormous palm tree planters. The sound collided with columns, fountains sprayed like bullets, too easy to imagine the hollow chime of casings sputtering out an evil jackpot onto the polished floor, joining the fury of slot machine iambic beats. In the poker room, whole tables flipped to their sides, chips in wild piles like a whale's in size. Exclamatory phone screams darted between knees. People knew they would die, so they typed, I love you first, had conversations in reverse. One couple said, fuck it, and did. A hand was taken by another under a table and never let go of again. And what about when the casino doors swung open, the lights came on, an announcement, false alarm? This too, they must have questioned their old life. Just shattered statements. What has been yelled cannot be unyelled. Fear will live on in the twitch of their shuffle. But some will gamble more, having learned the real risk would be in betting on the same life as they did before.
0: Very interesting. What has not been has been yelled cannot be unyelled. And of course, as a poker player, you're uh, thinking about how that's going to affect their gambling moving forward in the tournament. <laughs> That's oh, it's of, the gambling right that's kind of funny <laughs> too yeah thanks so much for sharing that Katie. A very good poem and uh thanks. interesting story yeah thanks so much have a good night yep you too bye this is that uh, katie uh dozier moshman K H D M with uh, all in let's go to brent stoffer next i'm trying hey brent while we hear you okay. we see you too we see you in here okay. how you doing great. today brent
12: oh i'm doing good real good great show
0: yeah, thanks. Thanks for being here, and it's good to uh, have rain in my room, but not yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little a little trade-off. I'll take it. <laughs> I think we wished for that last time. <laughs> yeah. That's right.
12: And, uh, uh, yeah, no, rain is great for you guys. That's it, awesome.
0: It is, yeah, and I'm right. sure you're sick of it probably up uh, there. <laughs>
12: yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, it's it's good. That it's not it's a little weird seeing um, Heather in L.A. because it's been dark here for hours and hours. Oh, yeah. And her... Her, her the sunny paradise that she was in that was I, yeah. I i like that oh and one thing about about uh that i i just thought of because of dick's question um I, I i don't know anything about fair use but i do know that ascap has never lost a lawsuit uh-huh so if they come after you just do what they say
0: just, yeah. <laughs> well that's, yeah that's what you gotta do The funny thing: my dad worked for ascap Although, worked for oh ASCAP. my dad did too really Did he actually work for ASCAP? (laughs) Yeah.
12: No. (laughs) Well, actually, he didn't work for ASCAP. That's a good question. He was offered a job to work for ASCAP. He was a member of ASCAP. Uh And they offered him the job of going around places and finding places that were playing ASCAP music without going through the paperwork.
0: Ah, And he
12: turned that down. He said, I I have no interest in that job.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that was my my dad's job for like a decade. You're just flying all over the wow. place, yeah, yeah, and uh, oh, wow, wow, yeah, like sneaking in, you know, listening on bars and to see who he could slap with for doing a cover song, you know, <laughs> wow. yeah, oh, yeah, and, and the interesting thing, I probably shouldn't tell this story, but uh, <laughs> but he used to get uh, nominations for the Grammy Awards, like the ballot, you know, oh, wow, and it would come filled out, <laughs> so we'll just leave it there.
12: Oh, okay. All right. Well, nothing to see here. <laughs> nothing
0: to see there. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's. Well, I did poem. a
12: I I did a prompt Um and I only have submitted it and I'm only going to read it out of solidarity to the cause um, because I, I don't think it's very good, <laughs> but, but I did it. And like you, I, I've discovered that if, if I don't do the, prompt then i feel like well as you put i, I just feel bad inside.
0: me too I and actually sad. i'm trying to cultivate yeah. that feeling because it's motivating you know so i'm kind of happy yeah, that sure. i feel bad but i have to remember that i do
12: <laughs> yeah and i and had like, to remind like eating myself potato
0: chips or something like I, I have to remember that i feel bad afterward <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <It all laughs> well and i
12: and i had to remember that it doesn't have to be a masterpiece the thing that i present Mm-hmm. So
0: yeah, just this certainly is good. But I'm sure this is so, much better than you're saying. So let's, uh, now that you've lowered our expectations, let's, well, let's,
12: okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is, this is, this is based on a story about um, a cicada brood that has disappeared from the area from Northern Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one that's supposed to show up every 17 years. And um, it has been around for a long time. And this scientist still goes checking to make sure that it's extinct. Mm -hmm. And I I thought that was pretty interesting.
0: Interesting, yeah, yeah.
12: That's what I did. Um, Here we go. Where have you gone, Brood 11? The biologist listened all day for cicadas. Nothing. From Fenton River Valley all the way to right here, the side streets of Ashford. No sign of the brood. 1954 was the last time anybody saw or heard this brood. The clicking, whistling biologist knows that nothing will respond to his loving invitations here. Every 17 years, though, you'll find him here, looking, walking, listening for the vanished brood. In the lab tonight, he'll write, once again, nothing. I brood, too, here at home, over nothing. Absolutely nothing.
0: Oh, that was excellent, it, just as I expected that was way better than oh. you uh, talked it down for. That was a good poem. I like that it, very fascinating. To think of him you know looking and then finding nothing, you know I mean yeah yeah, and they, kind of like the the uh the silence being gone or something from Heather's poem earlier, yeah, very interesting
12: yeah, it's cool and they t- they and he talked about how like sometimes science is best served by doing these these drudge type jobs mm-hmm. where you just drudge. And you're trying to prove a negative.
0: Yeah. Which is really difficult. Well, that's why I left the sciences because there was a lot of drudgery. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) uh, So I can relate to that. I I like uh, a new guest every week instead of uh, the same experiment for six months. But thanks for for sharing that, Brian. That is a great point. I like that.
12: Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody.
0: Yep. Uh, Let's go to Carl Johnson next. I think it's Carl Johnson. Carl J. Hey, Carl, are you there? You just got Oh, there you go. Hello. Hey, Carlton. I am here. Hey, yeah, great to see you. Good to be here. Um, So what is it that you'd like to share? I sent you a poem. Okay, I will pull it up. There we go. Go ahead whenever you're ready. This is um Something Epic. And um, did you include any message? No. So go ahead, yeah. This is a new poem, Something Epic. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Or if you could read it. Oh, sure. Yeah, I could read it for you. Okay, so this is Something Epic, and this is Carlton Johnston's poem, Something Epic. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to write something epic, something substantial, something with meat on the bones, but all I had was a simple idea of living life with something more than my own bones and my own flesh, and yet there I was at the Nourish Cafe having a BLT on sourdough toast for lunch. Perhaps that is enough, with everything else going on, I am at a perpetual loss, and it all do- doesn't add up to a hill of beans. But the BLT with a side of fruit salad gave me just enough umph to carry on, with whatever I needed to do, usually involving words, syntax, ambiguity, and rhythms, reaching through my veins, touching my very marrow. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carlton. It was something epic. Uh, yeah, great to see you in the, in person. It's really nice to uh, have you on the screen. Yes, thanks. Yeah, yeah take care, Carlton. Bye. And uh, let's go to our uh, final guest we have here is uh, Jennifer Lee Wang. Last but not least, of course.
13: Yeah, hey. hey. I really like the little bits about science because that's something... We get reminded in lab every day that like no result is a result, too. So don't, <laughs>
0: for, for don't sure. delete stuff. <laughs> um, so what do you have that you'd like to share?
13: Um, so this was my Poets Respond poem. And actually, I, I'm thinking I should try the Tritina because since it's about figure skating, I might come up with some interesting words if I pull in the word cloud. So mm-hmm. uh, this was in response to Olympian Yuzuru Hanyu. Uh, announcing his retirement from competitive figure skating. Oh, I thought it was a nice palate cleanser from the usual depressing news.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, just really, I mean, I've said this before, but anytime there's a poem that's like positive or like just not dark, it always stands out. And I'm always like, ah, maybe. Because we need, we need to break up, you know, we need to balance out the uh, the darkness of our world with some light as well. Um, so this is Hope and Legacy? Do I have the right one yes. up? Yes. Okay.
13: Yeah. And it's actually named after uh, one of his uh, figure skating routines. Excellent. <laughs> so Open yes.
0: legacy. Okay, go ahead.
13: <laughs> you were born to make history, but we almost didn't get to know you. Your senior season debut was nearly swallowed up by seismic activity. Surviving that made the near concussion from a head on collision seem like no big deal. Somehow the bandages suited your costume. You've always been both a prince and a warrior, a swan and a rocker. A clumsy cutie and a suave stoic who glided across the ice while bent backwards like a ballet dancer, yet stomped those quad landings with an extra oomph that your daredevil counterparts would call an afterbang. They'd never acknowledge it, but you've got some snowboarder in you, chasing innovation over victory. You might not have gotten a medal this year, but your neck was adorned with the moon you aimed for. And even though those Olympic days are over, we know you'll keep fighting, you were the hope of a nation, but you left a legacy for the world.
0: Excellent, yeah. Thanks for sharing a positive poems. hope and legacy. And um, so, so who is the the figure skater? The name again?
13: Uh, Yuzuru Hanyu. He won gold uh, twice in the previous Olympics, and then this last one, mm-hmm. he got fourth. But he's known for like uh, basically kind of revolutionizing men's competition and making everybody do quads and uh-huh. also adding more artistry. So.
3: Very yeah, interesting. and I yeah. kind of
13: consider him a little bit of a local because I lived uh, kind of near where he was in Japan for mm-hmm. a year. So, like, he especially has a special place for me as being from Sendai.
0: Yeah, very cool. I mean, that, that's a sport that I don't really follow, so it's nice to. I just love getting to learn about different things and hearing things I wouldn't otherwise. It's one of the beauties of poetry. So, thanks so much for sharing that, Jen. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, take care. It's Jennifer Lee Swang with Hope and Legacy, and uh, let me see um let me see if we can get uh nivy's tritina um nivedita sent one it's going to take a little bit to download actually my internet connection is very fast it's good it's good i am i'm leaving zoom so if you're um if you're still jumping on zoom last time uh a, a bunch of times people have uh joined zoom right as i'm finishing up but uh but I'm leaving it now, so if you haven't been on yet, you're going to have to uh, wait for next week. But let's go to um, Nivy's poem once it gets downloaded. And uh, this is Nivedita, of course, who um, is a regular guest, but um, the timing is not good anymore for, for where she is in India. Um, this is her Tritina. The story... I'll put the story up on screen. Um, the new story that she pulled... Is from BBC.com, MasterChef Australia, the cooks fighting Indian curry cliches. Um, here's uh, Nivy's story. Um, if you can see that. Master Chef Australia, the cooks fighting Indian curry cliches. Um, as the 14th season of Master Chef Australia draws to a close, Indian food has once again taken center stage in the popular cooking series. The season's runner up, Sarah Todd, presents an amazing Indian dish. Uh, including a pork uh, vindaloo, a pungent and spicy dish from the coastal state of Goa. Um, so, so that's the, uh, the kickoff for this, this uh, poem, and then let's see uh, what Nivy did with it. Can get it. Okay. Hang on. Okay, here we go. Okay, so I'm going to have this up, and then here is uh, Nivy's poem. Uh, don't, get, don't get me started on curry. Let's see if this works. There we go, there's Nivy and um, here we go
5: hello my name is Nivedita and this is my Radhika's prompt poem. so the new story I chose was about how Indian cooking is all the rage in like cooking shows like MasterChef Australia and the three keywords in that that were repeated the most were Indian, to and the and none of these are really words that I can use to make a poem out of so I distilled down the entire article, and the three keywords the article were centered round were dish, fine dining, and curry. So I wrote a poem using these three words. Don't get me started on curry. The oil sizzles, and it's time to start the curry. Oh, you know I hate it when you use that word. It is not a dish. But it is. In fact, it's a part of the culture of fine dining. Oh, surely. Do you want me to give you fine dining? I will. Just know that it is love that cooks the dish, not fine dining. And no true Indian household makes this at home, your so-called curry. You know what we make at home? Let me name some dishes. We have sambar and palak paneer and dal and oh sabzi, which is what we call your eponymous curry. So. Go to a true Indian home and experience the home-cooked goodness of fine dining. Curry is not fine dining. In fact, it is not even a true Indian dish. Thank you.
0: Oh, that was great. Okay, that was uh, Nivedita Karthik with uh, Don't Get Me Started on Curry. And I wish we could do a show-and-tell and have a, a little bit of a um, some of that food here. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivedita. It's always great to see you. Uh, um hopefully we can have some earlier shows coming up at some point and have you on live again. And I think we have one more. This is a Jackson Jane. Yeah, this is Jackson Jane um, with a tritina. This is Farm Blaze. I don't think she included an in article, but you can imagine Farm Blaze, uh, what this poem was about. Um maybe we'll learn a little bit more as we read it. Farm Blaze where once was golden yellow field black stubble scorched earth raging fire spread wings and flew sweeping acres we stood helpless watching acres of tended crops crackling each field succumbing to the heat of fire what use is man's gainst mighty fire burning unchecked smoke chokes acres of sun-baked fodder which filled bright field field charred fire sated acres lost yeah that watching acres of tended crops crackling yeah heartbreaking a uh, great 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 image there farm blaze thanks for sharing that um once again that was jackson jane thanks jackson or jane i should say um okay i think yeah we're going looking back at older poems so that is uh gonna be it for this week um let's go to our Saiku really quickly um, and the Saiku is based on this article i don't know how much i want to go into detail about it. Um, but this is from a research out of Tel Aviv university. And, um, during sleep, the brain's reaction to sound remains strong, but one critical feature of conscious attention disappears. Uh, sleep provokes a major key to the mystery of consciousness. um, New research may provide a key to scientific enigma. How does the awake brain transform sensory input into a conscious experience? The groundbreaking study relied on data collected from the electrodes implanted for medical purposes deep in the human brain. The information was utilized to examine differences between the response of the cerebral cortex to sounds in sleep versus wakefulness. At a resolution of single neurons, so what they had this um, you know people who already had electrodes implanted deep in their brains um, were what took part in the study, which lasted a few years, I think, where they um, compared brain activity while you're asleep versus while you're awake, and what they found surprisingly is that um, even if you're asleep, the things you hear. Um, fire up your, your cerebral cortex just as much as they do if you're awake and hear them. So you react to stimuli no matter how deeply asleep you are, which is fascinating. But you're not consciously aware of it. And the one difference is that these alpha-beta waves, um, which are kind of like making guesses about the, um, you know, seeing is this, is this something normal, something you have to pay attention to, sort of making that decision, um, those aren't firing. So you're sort of, your 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 reaction to the sounds aren't firing and so we're hearing it, but we're not having any response, which means a lot for consciousness um, and, and what it means to be conscious, which um, I've always felt is kind of the, um, I don't know, the slippage between our expectations and how they play out in reality. I think that's what consciousness is, that, that anxiety, um, which, you know, as AI comes up, that's something that's come up a lot lately. But anyway, that is a fascinating little bit of research there from uh, Tel Aviv University. And here is the uh, psycho. Every hour, she rolls over the night train. Every hour, she rolls over the night train. And yeah, And So we were in Bend, uh, Oregon, and where uh, my in-laws live, there's a train that comes by. It only comes by once a night, but um, I embellished a little bit and pretended it was every hour. But there you go. Uh, that was my psycho for this week, and that is the show for this week. Thanks, everybody. It's been a fascinating episode. I really enjoyed this. Um, next week's prompt, you might have been able to guess based on, uh, we're trying to tie them into the guest, and uh, this is next week's prompt right here. Um, Write an obituary for an inanimate object or idea. So, you know, Heather's book, uh, Postmortem, is kind of uh, obituaries or um, elegies for for objects and and things like that, or ideas or concepts. And so that is your prompt. Write something like this, an obituary for an inanimate object or idea. Uh, That is your prompt for this week, and next week's guest is going to be Um, Raquel Franco, um, her newest book, I don't think Keep Me Wild is her newest, I think she has one since then, Um, but she's been in rattle twice, she's an Instagram poet. Um, She was in our Instagram Poets issue first, then had a poem in the Springs issue as well. Um, So a really different look at at the way publishing goes. And um, it's going to be fascinating talking to her about that. Uh, Raquel Franco is the guest next week, Rattlecast number 154. The prompt, write an obituary for an inanimate object or idea. Looking forward to the episode. Hope you have a great week. In the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night. Good night.